0: You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Matthew 6, we are in the Lord's Prayer. And... um, We are looking at, we've been going line by line, so I'm going to read up to where we are, and today uh, we'll be focusing on forgiveness. Listen, for this is God's holy word. Matthew 6, verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And, And then today's verse... And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts. Today I want to look at forgiveness, both what we receive and what we give, as part of the Lord's Prayer. In his study of the Lord's Prayer, N.T. Wright points out something very interesting. Um, in, In talking about forgiveness... He says that one of the most notable images in all the New Testament, one of the most notable images in all the New Testament is a picture of a man running. A man running. Now, we are familiar with men running. We are familiar with even older men running. If you go to a park this afternoon, uh, you will see an older guy perhaps running. And so we're familiar with that picture. But in biblical times, in New Testament times, men didn't run. Children ran. Men didn't run. And older men especially didn't run. The older you were, the less likely you were to run. As a matter of fact, senior men didn't even walk fast because that showed a lack of gravitas. And so in the story that Jesus tells about the prodigal son, the son who had gone and squandered all of his father's wealth, when the father runs out to meet the son, it's alarming. It's not shocking to us, but to the first readers, it is shocking when he runs. The son has rebelled against the father. The son has disgraced the entire family. And yet the father sheds all cultural dignity and he runs to embrace his long lost son and to shower him with forgiveness. A beautiful picture of forgiveness. You see, Jesus' ministry, as we've seen throughout, and what's really at the heart of this whole prayer, Jesus' ministry is about bringing the kingdom of God. And he tells us through that story, what does the arrival of the kingdom of God look like? It looks like an old man running to embrace his son with forgiveness, Wright calls that parable, actually, the parable of the running father. Because that's the picture. It is a glorious God running with forgiveness to an undeserving, rebellious son. Jesus comes bringing the the kingdom. and, and, And the people of Israel thought that he would be bringing a political kingdom. That's what they longed for. But he doesn't bring a political kingdom He brings what they need. He brings a kingdom of forgiveness. Israel isn't living under Roman rule because Rome is powerful. It's because Israel is sinful. They have have wandered from God. And so Jesus comes announcing what they need, forgiveness, which he brings. That's the greatest need. That's why his opening act, John the Baptist, is out calling people to a baptism of repentance, because it is repentance preparing their hearts to receive, not a political kingdom, but the forgiveness of their sins. That's what John the Baptist says. Jesus is who? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's forgiveness. That's why he comes. If you follow the story of Jesus in the Gospels, you will see that there is forgiveness everywhere. No matter what he's doing, forgiveness is flowing. There's a story one time where some friends bring their crippled buddy and they lower him down into a roof on a stretcher. And what does Jesus say to him? Your sins are forgiven. Everyone is shocked. Then he says, rise up and walk. He walks and he says, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk. But because he said, rise up and walk and he's healed, it demonstrates that Jesus is the king who has the power to forgive sins. It's Jesus who comes alongside the woman caught in adultery. And says, hey, the one who was out sin, you cast a stone and stone her. And all those who would judge and kill her walk away. And Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. In other words, you are forgiven. Go and sin no more. So because Jesus' ministry is about forgiveness and bringing the kingdom of forgiveness to those who need forgiveness, it's no surprise that this fifth request in the Lord's Prayer is about forgiveness. A, A statement of asking for forgiveness and a statement about forgiving others. So there's really two ideas in this petition. One is forgive us. The second one is help us to forgive others. At least that's implicitly the point. Help us to forgive others. So forgive us and help us to forgive others. Number one, forgive us. Jesus here in this petition uses a term for wrongdoing or a term for sin that we don't usually use. We don't usually speak this way about sin. What does he say? Look at verse 12. He says, forgive us our debts. Now we think of a debt as money owed to someone, but Jesus here is using it in a much broader sense. Jesus is speaking about a debt as an obligation. A debt is an obligation. He's saying, Father, forgive us Our obligation to you, or forgive us our failed obligation. Forgive us for not meeting our obligation to you. So, for this request to make any sense at all, we need to think about what is our debt? What are our debts? What what are our obligations? If you were, if you are, maybe under a mountain of financial debt. If you're experiencing the pinch. Of debt, and it gets to the place where you decide to get help, and you go and meet with a financial counselor. One of the very first things they're going to do is assess your situation, and they're going to help you by accumulating a listing and a totaling of all your debts so that then you can forge a plan to deal with what you owe. And in the same way, when Jesus uses this word, we don't want to just skate by, yes, forgive us our debts, whatever that means. We want to think for a minute, and I'm going to spend a little time this morning thinking about this word and thinking about what our debts are. What are our obligations to God? In other words, what kind of debt load do you carry before the sovereign king of the universe? What do we owe God? Maybe you're sitting here going, I didn't know I did owe God anything. But Jesus says we have debts. And we're praying to our Father in heaven. So Father in heaven, forgive us our debts towards you. What do we owe God? The truth is, you owe God everything. Because he is the creator, your very existence belongs to God. You're not here without God willing you to be, and you won't be here tomorrow unless God sustains you through the night until tomorrow. We owe every heartbeat and every breath to God Almighty. There's not a person in the room or a person watching that's a self-sustaining individual. You did nothing to be born And ultimately, your ongoing life is in his hands. We owe our existence to him. But the Bible says that he's not only creator, he's also king. He's king that rules over all of his creation. He doesn't just create and let everything run its course, like a a deist would believe. But rather, he creates and then rules providentially, over all that he has created. And as a king, he rules by a law. He has given us a law to live by. It's found in the Bible. This is where we find the law of God explaining how he requires us to live. So we could say that as subject to the king, all people owe the king obedience to his law. Well, what kind of obedience do we owe? What does that even mean? I mean, I thought that if we're sincere people, if we're basically good, if we don't do anything really scandalously bad, won't God, who after all is forgiving, right, won't he just sort of overlook the various minor offenses of our lives? Isn't that how it works? Most people who assume there is a God assume that's how he governs. As sort of a doting, perhaps grandfatherly kind of character that understands how hard it is in these times. And basically just gives you a pass unless you're really, really, really bad. And that's always someone else. Never us. But Jesus presents a very different Different view. Someone asked Jesus, What does God require? What are the, the big commandments? And this is what Jesus says that you must love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. What's he saying? He's saying that every fiber of your being, your intent, your will, your thoughts, your speech, your actions, that they all must be lived in all moments. Motivated by pure and complete love for God. And then he says, secondly, you must love your neighbor just like you love yourself. He's assuming, presuming uh, that you do love yourself. And he's saying that you must love others just as you love yourself. Some people have this idea that the God of the Old Testament's really harsh. And Jesus is this really loving, gentle character. And yet Jesus takes the law of God and he says, look, this is what is required. Every moment of your life is to be lived out in complete love for God and others. Never a selfish thought, never a selfish motive, never a selfish word, never a selfish action. And if that's not clear, at another place Jesus says this, here's what God requires. You must be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So, debts, what do we owe God? I think we could say it this way we owe God our very lives expressed through perfect obedience to His law. That's what we owe Him. We owe Him our very lives through perfect obedience. To his law. That's how the story of the Bible starts. God creates Adam and Eve and puts them in a perfect environment where they do have uh, perfect, flawless communion with God. Where they're not sinning, but they are in sweet relationship and fellowship. And all is harmonious and right. The biblical word is shalom. That all is uh, perfectly harmonious and flourishing A glorious, the work of their hands, their relationship with one another, their relationship with God, their environment, it's all perfect until they rebel against God and sin. And their sin is then passed on to the next generation and to the next generation and to the next generation. And we confirm their fall and their sin every day through our own thoughts and our own actions, our own words, by what we do and by what we fail to do. And we only see that. We only get glimpses of that. Hopefully, you're getting a glimpse of that now. But we only get a glimpse of that at moments when we stop comparing ourselves to others, and for a moment, look at God's word and compare ourselves to his standard, which is perfection, which is holiness, just as he is. And when we look at his law and say, the motives of my heart, the words of my mouth, the actions of Of my life must never have an ounce of selfish motivation to them, but are to be purely motivated by love for him and love for my neighbor. It's in those moments when we see that that we say we have an incalculable debt before God. And our culture doesn't believe that, that this is perhaps the most uh, upstream kind of concept imaginable. It's downright offensive. If you understand what the Bible says about sin, the natural person is offended by that. Because we all think we're basically good people, generally speaking. But the the scripture uses a very different way to describe us. It says we're spiritually dead towards God. It speaks of the, the, the sinful people. We love the darkness. We don't want, Jesus said that, we don't want our sins to be exposed. If we take scripture seriously and we examine our hearts honestly, we find that we have a debt we could never pay back. R.C. Sproul, uh, in talking about this verse, he said, you know, if someone came to me and said, you have to pay up $10,000 within the next week, or you're going to jail. He said, you know what? I could come up Even if I'm broke, I could I could figure out ten grand if it meant go to jail. But if someone came to me and said, "If one week you don't pay ten billion dollars, you're going to jail," he said, "I could contact everyone I know and ask them if they would empty their accounts to help me pay this penalty and stay out of jail." But because the amount is so great, all my friends couldn't come up with ten billion dollars. And he said, that's our debt before God. It's, an, it's way more than $10 billion, but it's an impossible debt to pay. That's the very point, that we have walked away from God. We have chosen our own way. We have written our own story rather than embrace and delight and celebrate the story that God is writing for the universe. And for us, we've rejected the gracious King and we have followed the way of self-love rather than the way of God love and neighbor love. And if you're even wrestling now with what I'm saying, if you're questioning if that assessment is actually really true or maybe just a little bit overblown, just think of not what you've done, but think of what you've left undone that God requires. If you think of what perfect love for God every moment and perfect neighbor love every moment, think about what that would look like over your 20 years, your 30 years, your 70 years of life. J.I. Packer has wisely said, when Christians examine themselves, it is for omissions that they should look first, and they will always find that their saddest sins take the form of good left undone. Our saddest sins take the form of good left undone. As you get older, some of you are young, some of you are older than I, but as you get older, you begin to look back on your life And everyone by nature has some level of regret. There's grace to cover that. That's what grace is all about. But we all have regrets. And when I look back at my life, most of my regrets, some of them are for things that I did. But many of them are for things that I failed to do. They're the things I left unsaid that needed to be said. They're the actions that needed to be done that I just never did. They were the habits that needed to be embraced of godliness. They were the prayers that I really never prayed. They were the time that I really never took and invested in this person or that or whatever the case may be. You look back over your career. You look back over your marriage. When your kids get older, you look back over your parenting. And there's not a person that doesn't look back and say, if I had it to do over again, I know what I would have done there or there or there. To honor the Lord. So we have this infinite debt to God. So what do we do? We turn to God. That's the point of the prayer. Count your debt, know your debt. Most of us don't know. We're just kind of like spending on a credit card and have no idea. Don't look at the bills when it comes in each month. Don't know what our debt is. But if we think about our debt before the Lord, like trying to lead us through in this exercise, then we are to turn to him. And that's the point of the prayer. Like Adam and Eve, we've turned away from God. But God made a promise to Adam and Eve after they turned. He came to them. And he came to them and he said one day he would send someone that would crush the head of the serpent that tempted them. The one who brought the very temptation that they bought into. One day he would crush the evil serpent's head. One day he would send someone that would reverse the curse Someone that would make all things new, that would make things right, that would make God's creation and God's people the way it's supposed to be, the way we're supposed to be. That he would send someone who would redeem. Jesus is that promised redeemer. And now he has shown up on the stage and he is trafficking in forgiveness That's, that's the culture that he is bringing. That's the language that he uses. He is coming, announcing the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and turn to God. Because if you repent and turn to God, there is forgiveness for those who will trust in Jesus. He comes announcing forgiveness and he doesn't just come announcing it. He's not just coming up saying, Hey guys, God's a really forgiving God. He's coming to do something about it. He's coming to do do something to bring forgiveness. He comes and he lives a perfect life. Jesus didn't leave any deed undone. Jesus never sinned against his father. Jesus is God himself. He never sinned in his thoughts, in his words, in his deeds. He never failed. He lived a perfect life and he did that to, to Credit that to those who would believe. Jesus lives a perfect life that we could not live. He comes fundamentally, not as an example, but he comes as a substitute. He doesn't come to show you the way. He comes to be the way that you could never live, that I could never live. He's not just coming and pointing to a holy God. He's living a holy life in our place. And not only does he do that, but he pays our debt. When it says, forgive us our debts, as we finish the story of the gospels and see what Jesus did, our eyes are to go to Christ who paid our debt. We deserve judgment for our infinite debt, but he died to pay our debt. Back when I was young, some of you, if you grew up as church kids in the, I don't know, 70s or 80s, there was this sing-songy little song we used to sing, which I'll save you the tune. But the words were, were, he had a debt uh, he did not owe. I had a debt I could not pay. And that is the truth. Jesus didn't owe a debt because he was sinless. But we owed a debt, and that's why he came. And do you know how he paid your debt? He didn't pay your debt by saying, be a good person. You can't do that. He didn't pay your debt by saying, be perfect. Now you guys know how to do it. You can't do that. He didn't, he didn't pay our debt by saying, look, this is the way. Love God. And if you do that, you can pay him back. No, he knew we could never pay. It's an incalculable debt. So he took our debt. And how did he take our debt? By dying on the cross. This is the very language that Paul uses. Paul uses debt language to experience what's happening in Jesus' death. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, this is what it says. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive, God made us alive in him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus says that there were legal demands against us. Paul frequently talks about this. The Bible is a story, but when it comes to describing the story of Jesus's death, there's many ways that New Testament writers deal with that. And one primary way is to view it transactionally. Yes, it's motivated by love. Yes, it's personal. But there is a real transaction happening on the cross. Jesus is taking our sin it has legal demands. You are under legal obligation to God, and you cannot pay him back. But he loves you so much that Jesus takes the record of your wrongs, the, the in essence, the legal case against you, which is his law, the regulations against us, and he nails it to the cross. He nails it to the cross showing that his death pays for the debt of everyone who will believe. That's freedom from the legal demands. That's him covering it, nailing it to the cross. Uh, the, The Bible also says this in 2 Corinthians 5. It says that Jesus is, in essence, charged with our debt. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, it doesn't say that God made Jesus sin. It said he made him to be sin. That is, he is, takes our sins. He's credited with our sins. He's credited with our sins, and then we are credited with his righteousness. He died to take—there's an exchange here, an actual exchange. Jesus takes our sins. That is, Jesus takes our debt. And then Jesus gives us—he doesn't just bring us whole back to zero— He doesn't just pay off all our debt, so now you start at zero. He gives us his righteousness. Those who will believe are declared righteous elsewhere, the scripture says. So that means when you believe in Jesus, you don't just have a blank slate with zero dollars in the account. Okay, you owed a billion, now you owe zero. No, you owed a billion, it's all taken away, and now there's hundreds of trillions of dollars in your bank account. The righteousness of Christ credited to everyone who would believe. It's astounding. What happens at the cross? This exchange so that now we can be reconciled relationally to the Father. Our debt is paid for and we are reconciled. Our great obligation has been met. We are forgiven. If you believe in Jesus All your sins are forgiven. This is unbelievable. Past, present, and future, your sins are wiped away. Your record is clean, but it's better than that. You are given the record of Jesus. If you're a Christian, how does God view you today? He views you in Christ as totally righteous. So why do we have to ask forgiveness? Because this is given to Christians, right? Our Father in heaven, aren't we forgiven? Yes, we are forgiven with regard to our standing before God. But we also have a relationship with God. And like any other relationship, when we sin, which we do, uh, when we sin, it hinders our fellowship with God. It doesn't hinder our position, our relationship. We're still sons and daughters of God. But there is something that happens in our heart when we sin against God. We, we do drift from him. And so we are to regularly pray, please forgive me. Forgive us our sins. Daily we pray, Father, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Why do we do that? I, I believe because if we pray for daily bread and if we pray for daily forgiveness, it is a daily drawing us back to the grace of Jesus. God doesn't want you to pray daily for the forgiveness of sin so that you become more sin conscious. God wants you to pray daily for the forgiveness of sin so that you become more grace conscious. If you don't look at your debts, you'll never be aware. You'll, you'll never live in the good of the Jesus who died to forgive you. God's not wanting to rub your face in your day. It's not going to come up daily with a bill saying you owe, you owe, you owe. He wants daily for you to see Jesus on the cross and an empty tomb who rose to pay for your sins so that every day you walk in the freedom of grace. If you only pray, forgive me my sins once a month, then you get a once a month look at what Jesus did for you. But if you confess your sins daily and throughout the day and say, Lord, forgive me, For that, then you get a regular, constant reminder of the sacrificial love of Jesus for you. When you think about your sins forgiven, you should be thinking of the father running to embrace you in love. The picture of forgiveness is not the prodigal son, you know, in the pigsty, wallowing in how bad he is. That's where it starts. But then he gets up and the father runs to him. That's what the Lord wants us to see. It's not about focusing on how bad we are. It's about focusing on how glorious grace is and to see clearly what he has done. And he also makes the point here, we ultimately don't just think about someone else's sin against us, but we think about our sin against God and the two are related. So that's why we also pray as we have forgiven our debtors. So help us to forgive. Here it's spoken of as a given as we have forgiven our debtors. Sort of an an implication that once you know the forgiveness of Christ, you will be empowered to forgive others. There's a relationship between God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of others. It's not equal. Our forgiveness is not equal. His forgiveness is much greater, but it empowers us to forgive others. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells this story about what's the relationship between how much he's forgiven us and how much we forgive others. So he tells this story about a, uh, a master who had servants, and he's sort of settling financial cases with them. And uh, so one of them comes and has this tremendous debt. This guy works for him, has a tremendous debt to the master. The ESV study Bible says the figure that's given, I forget what it is, 10,000 talents or something like that, that the figures given in today's uh, numbers would be about $6 billion. So someone owes him about $6 billion. So the master says, okay, you your wife, your kids, you're all going to be sold off. And so the guy begs him, please forgive me, please forgive me. And and he says, okay, I'll forgive you a debt of $6 billion. So the guy, rather than rejoicing in his forgiveness, he goes out and he finds someone that owes him some money. He comes across someone that owes him money. Now it's not a small amount. The study Bible says that it's about $12,000. So that's a pinch. That'd be a pain if someone owed you just 12 grand. So owes him $12,000. He says, you owe me $12,000, and he wants to punish them. Throw them in the dungeon, you know. You, you, he, he treats them terribly, jails them. And so what happens is the word gets back to the king. That guy you forgave, $6 billion, you know what he did? He went out and found someone who owed him 12000 and he punished them for what they owed. So they, he called him back and said, how could you do that? You know, how could you do that? You know, Send him to the jailers. And he was tormented for ultimately what he did. Well, what was the point of the story that Jesus is, is saying? He's saying when we grasp the great debt we've been forgiven, it empowers us to forgive others the debts they owe us. He doesn't say that the debts are meaningless. $12,000 would be a very meaningful debt. So he's not saying that people don't really hurt you and you're not really suffering. No, you are hurt. You are suffering. Some of us have been sinned against terribly. Hurt terribly. He's not minimizing anyone's suffering. What he's saying is it's intended to give us a different view on the proportionality. My sin against God versus someone else's sin against me. It's it's causing me to look to God who the perfect holy one has forgiven me, and that's to drive my forgiveness to someone else, for others. Someone has said, we are never more like God than when we forgive others feel about that you're never more like God in a moment than when we forgive others Jesus said father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing to those who crucified him it's in that moment when we release our debt uh, others debt to us we don't hold it in bitterness or anger or unforgiveness but we look to Christ who's released our debt And ask for his power to release the debt of others. This is the Christian life. We live and breathe the air of forgiveness. The kingdom is a kingdom of forgiveness. The Father relates to us as the God who has forgiven us. And when we accept that and receive that, it empowers us to forgive others. When we don't forgive others, humanly speaking, the person that's hurt greatest by that is ourselves. Ultimately, God frees us so that we can free others. So how do we respond to this? Well, I think for some of us to make daily confession a regular part of our routine, that's where I would start. I think some of us need to make regular confession to the Lord. Now, where we sin against others, we need to make confession of to them too. But we need to make regular confession to the Lord for our sins. Be- why? Because this brings the gospel into daily view. For some of us, this is not a regular practice, but it's, it's a powerful practice. In First John, John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So if you say you have nothing to confess, that's deception, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's a regular reminder of Christ and what he's done. It's a regular receiving of the Father's embrace. It's a regular clear conscience and a fresh cleansing from all thoughts, impressions, attitudes, words, and actions. So I think making this prayer a regular prayer, forgive us our sins as we as also, I'm sorry, forgive us our debtors as we, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts. Just making this a part of our daily prayer in itself is powerful. number two, I would say by faith, receive the forgiveness so that you can pass along what you've received. Experience the freedom of forgiveness so that you can extend this. This is the answer to the condemnation many of us live. Many of us live under condemnation. But if we confess our sins to the Lord, our debts, and consider, remember, Colossians 2, that at the cross he paid our debt. There is something about meditating on that and receiving that by faith that our records of wrongs were covered at the cross that that changes us and recognizing there is mercy in Christ. I love what the Puritan Richard Sibbs famously said, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Do you know that? There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. The running father. Who showers us with mercy and if you've had trouble forgiving some of us wrestle sometimes for years with a grudge with bitterness with unforgiveness and sometimes we think well we have to go through and get that all processed just perfectly i need to think of what they did i need to go through that really i think the key to to coming to a place where we can forgive is focusing on what christ has done and his forgiveness for us that's matthew 18 Yes, there's a place to review history, but ultimately freedom from bitterness comes not from rehearsing the actions of someone else and trying to forgive. It comes from rehearsing the actions of Christ towards you, taking our sins on the cross. There's more mercy in Christ than in us so we can pray with faith, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And Lord, if we're struggling to forgive our debtors, help us see your forgiveness to us